0: There's still those handful of people that love their oaky Chardonnay so much that the word Chablis is kind of like a bad word. But I also think there's majorly the reverse of that. And, you know, maybe it's more the younger generation is interested in the less oaky, more mineral toned Chardonnay. I didn't even realize Chardonnay could taste like that, that love, love Chablis.
1: Hello, welcome to The Scourged, a fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinking. As always, I'm your host, Zach Chabal, and joining me on today's show is Cappy Pete, the beverage director for AC Restaurants in Raleigh, North Carolina. We'll chat about the challenges and opportunities of working in a smaller market, studying for exams, and why smaller wine lists are sometimes better. All that in a moment, but first, a thought. I have a love-hate relationship with the word curate. Using it to describe what I do with a wine list evokes many of the worst stereotypes of snobs and the self-important, but it's also the most accurate way to describe what creating and maintaining a wine program is actually about. In every situation, in every restaurant, the wine buyer is working within a certain set of constraints, and if they're serious about their craft, they try to assemble the best list they can while staying within those parameters. For some, that might be a million dollar budget, a massive seller, and a mandate to win a Wine Spectator Grand Award for their program. For others, it might be to offer as many wines as possible from the particular region that the restaurant focuses on. Others have a more nebulous mandate. Make a list of 50 or 100 or 150 wines that will have something for every guest at a wide range of price points. It's that kind of challenge that I personally love, and those are often the lists I respect the most. Having to pick the one and only one Vouvray you get to put on a list requires a deep knowledge of the style and also an understanding of what your guests will expect when they order that bottle. It's really the most glamorous job. The top psalms usually want a bigger budget and more labels, but it's a far more challenging one than most people know. Joining me today on Discord is Cappy Pete. She's the beverage director at AC Restaurants in Raleigh, North Carolina. Cappy, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, so starting off, just how did, you, uh, how did you get involved in wine and in the wine industry?
0: I knew I wanted to be in hospitality and wasn't sure what area from early on thought out a college specifically that focused on hospitality. But at that point I thought maybe I'll own a catering business or maybe I'll work for country clubs or i have never really had the interest in hotels, but uh, always restaurants, always something with food and service and all of those things. So I ended up at university of South Carolina in Columbia, South Carolina and they, I saved up my electives until senior year so that I could take the Wine and Spirits electives class because you had to be 21 to take it. And I thought that would be a great you know, senior class to take, um, a fun one, fun, hopefully <laughs> easy in my mind at the time. Uh, and from there, they, uh, they offered the intro level of sommelier training through the Court of Masters as a little weekend add-on. And I didn't know anything about that. I didn't know what a sommelier was, didn't know how to say the word sommelier, didn't uh, really understand that there were levels through the court, ways to do it without certifications, or that there was really a, you know, career to be made of it. So I took it because everybody was kind of starting to panic at the time. This was 2009, so starting to be concerned about jobs. And so I kind of thought specialization was a good way to go. So I just looked at it as a resume booster, if nothing else. And so went and took the intro level course uh, through the university, and um, it was terrifying. I felt like I uh, knew nothing except Napa and Sonoma. I'd never heard of any other wine region in my life. And so I left the first day practically in tears, and just went and bought as much wine as I could possibly afford, and all these varietals I'd never heard of, like Chenin Blanc and uh nebbiolo and whatever so um went back the next day i'd crammed all night and i passed and so i was like all right well maybe i'm on to something learned about the levels you could go to from there and so i specifically sought out a beverage course like a sommelier beverage course at the uh it's now the french culinary institute um but it was the uh, professional culinary institute in san jose california and i went out there and took that course and um and then got my second level following that course. And, you know, leading up to that, I'd worked at some very, very, very casual places like Sticky Fingers Barbecue as a hostess and <laughs> things like that. So I really didn't have a lot of restaurant experience uh, except for doing some summer internships, wanted a country club, wanted a resort, but it was like specific to like um gosh, what were we? Um, We were the recreation interns. And so we were doing, you know, like handling kids camps and things like that. So um, again, didn't have a lot of restaurant experience. And after speaking with some of the master sommeliers after getting level two, I said, all right, you know, where do I go from here? I want to get into the business, but I don't really know where to start. And they're like, well, you you need to be a server at a fine dining restaurant. You know, you got to start from the bottom, go, you know, be a server assistant or whatever. And so I ended up back in Charleston, South Carolina, because it's um, that time and I guess till now was really um, in a period of exciting growth for restaurants and beverage programs. And so I went to McCready's because I'd heard that they had a great beverage program and basically said, you know, let to the beverage director, let me follow you or let me follow you around for free. I would love to just, you know, look at bottles, help you put them away, understand, you know, service and everything like that. And, uh, they hired me as a server assistant. So that's where it all started.
1: Very cool. Were there, were there a, a, was there a wine or two in there, like a gateway wine or two where you're like, wow, you know, this is, this is something where I, I just want to learn more about it. Or was it more the, the broader world?
0: You know, at that time, it, it's so funny looking back on the things that were interesting or exciting to me then that really have are not a huge part of my life now, but, um, I remember specifically the first wine that I got right when I was blind tasting it. And it was, uh, to be honest, I don't even remember what the producer was, but it was a California Viognier, which would never be my choice today. I think that's also like a
1: really, uh, that's like, I'm surprised that that is the first wine you, like you got right in a blind setting. Obviously some of it depends like what you had the opportunity to try, but that doesn't necessarily strike me as, I mean, it's somewhat distinctive, but like, I feel like for most of us it's like, I don't know, like, uh, Chinon or, or, um, something, something just, yeah, or like Amarone or something that's kind of more at one of the extremes. Not that Cali Viognier can't be, but that's, I'm, I'm impressed and sort of surprised.
0: Well, I guess I always struggled with non-aromatic whites. I mean, to this day, I struggled with non-aromatic whites. Uh, and so I guess I just uh, – the wines with terpenes always stood out to me. Mm-hmm. And so that, I guess, combination of a little bit of oak and still – but still very, very, very terpenic made it right for me. So I don't, I don't know. That one stood out to me as just like, oh, my gosh. I, and, it, you know, at the time, it was probably a solid shot in the dark, but – you know i had enough i was really hell-bent on the floral component and so i went with it but i remember being really excited about that and then probably i was extremely lucky to try a lot of the wines that uh were brought in for this beverage program at the french culinary institute um but one of the wines in particular cause as far as red i don't feel like i had any idea what i liked and i tried a lot of different things and um and i think in general At that time, my palate leaned a little bit more towards fuller-bodied wines, which isn't necessarily the case now. But I remember trying um, Antonori Tignanello and being absolutely blown away. And thinking this wine is so neat. It has so many different things going on as far as texture, earth, but tons of fruit, too. And, you know, it totally appeals to that American palate, but it's still very refined and beautiful. So there wasn't one particular wine that I tried and was like, yes, I really want to stick with wine. It was more, I liked just the I'm I'm big on details and I feel like that's what made me want to get into not necessarily just hospitality, but for the longest time, like I said, I wanted to be in catering or uh, event planning or something that involved lots of details. And I think I just liked so many intricacies of wine and, you know, all that it took to understood, understand where it came from and why it tasted like it did and all of that. So I just kind of fell in love with it.
1: Very cool, and so you're you're still currently obviously pursuing. Um, are you are you you got your advanced uh, sommelier to, uh, pin at this point, right?
0: I do. I yeah. do. I sat master this year.
1: Oh, okay. Um, and obviously, well, theory because of the it would be like today, uh, if not for hurricanes that would have <laughs> been would have been uh, tasting and service, right? That's
0: right. That's right.
1: Um, yeah. So, so I have a few questions about that process. Um, namely sort of do you maybe looking at each kind of category or each part of the exam. Um, so with, with regards to um, let's say theory first, are there like, what's your, what's your general approach and, and are you, are there? Is is there stuff that you find, do you find yourself more drawn to um, like, how do you understand a, a wine or a region or like, w- how do you sit down to tackle that?
0: Oh gosh. Big question. That's a big question. Uh, Sorry. Oh no, that's okay. I, I feel like because i've of- so I took advanced twice and then I took uh, master theory the first three years ago, I think when they first split it up, maybe it was the second year after they split up. And then I took a year off because I got married and just had a crazy year. And so this was me resitting for the second time, but with that break in the middle. And I feel like my study approach has changed a lot. I used to be really, 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 and this is kind of, I'm going a couple different directions to answer your question, but um, I used to be really big on flashcards and I still like flashcards, but I feel like I got, again, with the details, I got carried away with my flashcards and they ended up just being full of information and they weren't like flashcards. You know what I mean? (laughs) It was more like I would sit there and just read them instead of like actually quizzing myself with them. And it took up more time just actually, which I know is the case. It took so much time putting those together and I felt like I wasn't really getting as much out of them as, what i the practice i wanted out of them um so i've i've gone a little and i'm very visual and so i've gotten a lot more into charts and just charting kind of what i've started to call grand crew theory which is just like you know starting i think it's really important to start with the basics and make sure that like take burgundy for example you can name all the villages north to south and understand you know what color of wine they're able to produce in each one, uh, you know, then maybe start by naming, you know, all the Grand Cru's in the villages and then be able to say, you know, a handful of the Premier Cru's or at least the important ones, you know, start with like three or something out of each one, understanding which ones don't have Premier Cru's or Grand Cruises, Um And then kind of just continuing to flesh it out from there. And you can, get, you know, with Burgundy, obviously producers are so incredibly important to understanding style and, you know, production style and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but before, I feel like before, I don't know, it's hard to put it in order, but I was going to say before you can get to producers, a lot of times I like to think about, you know, natural, geographical things, like where where soil types, the concentrations of certain soil types around certain regions and things like that, or, you know, geographical things that affect a, the climate in a certain area and why those lines are a little bit different there. Um, and then don't know it's hard to say order producers are always important well I feel like producers have gotten to be much more important the higher up in the levels you get Mm -hmm. it used to be that even the I feel like from the first time I sat advanced to the second time and it was back-to-back years it got a lot more producer heavy and I think that over the years they're continuing to make it a little more producer heavy but at intro and certified you might get one question on a producer and so I feel like I didn't focus on that for a while and that was a little bit of a struggle for me because Being in somewhat smaller markets as far as the United States goes, I kind of have relied on, like, I've joined a bunch of emails for some retail shops that I really think are great in New York. And because we don't necessarily have access to all of these, you know, great wines or highly sought after wines in South Carolina and North Carolina, and that's certainly changed over the years. But I've relied on external sources to read about these producers and hopefully get to try them at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, as far as sitting down at tackle at master level now, uh, I get a whole book on it and I read it cover to cover and I write an outline of that book, um, you know, down to, I don't know, you know, breakdowns of, you know, a certain wine produced by this certain person or something like that. Um, and then and like I said, I do a lot of charts for reference, but I've started using a, a flashcard program where you can basically build your flashcards in a an Excel sheet and then export it into um, the flashcard. So that for, for me, I can't put, you know, paragraphs and paragraphs of information on there, um, but also to just save time from actually writing it out, because I find that while I thought I was getting a lot out of writing it, I feel like I just got so good at it that it was I could do it without thinking about it. Mm. So now I just like to type it, get it on paper or or on a, you know, digital device of some sort and then, you know, spend repetition, mm-hmm. you know, do a lot of those flashcards.
1: Yeah. So. Makes sense. And do you do you find yourself, um, you know, when you know, maybe when you're actually in the exam setting, um, you know, does the is the recall for you like, Hey, I remember that flashcard, or is it more like I remember you know, if you're getting a question about, you know, uh, let's say specific soil types in Grand Cru vineyards in Alsace, and you're getting asked about that, like yeah. to me, you know, that's one of those things that's really fascinating to me because I think everyone who's sort of at that level has a, not everyone has a different one, but there are a lot of different ways in which people kind of recall that information. And for some people, it's, I remember trying those wines and I remember what they taste like. And uh-huh. therefore, I remember the soil type. Um, in, in said vineyard. And for some people it's, I remember my flashcard that has that information on it and I remember what it says. Uh, you know, for you, is it when you're, when you're actually, cause I think, you know, it's kind of one of those things, right? Where, where you study one way and then the exam comes around and, um, your ability to actually recall that information is what's at stake.
0: Right. I think if I have, t- I remember it a lot more so from trying the wine and even if I haven't tried the wine, but I've held the wine, I, I remember the label. Mm-hmm. And I can think about, that's how I think about vineyards so often. It, you know, like remembering that premier crew was in that village on that bottle, even if I haven't tried it, but seeing, you know, seeing it at a retail shop or something like that. But um, yeah, I think that for, in, the, in most cases it, it is based on me actually trying the wine, but I, I mean, I definitely I can picture a flashcard and a lot of times <laughs> in a tough way, like I can remember the question. I don't remember what the back said, but, um, but yes, I I do find, um, my flashcards have been helpful with recall, but I'm big on the experience or, you know, remembering just describing that particular wine to a guest. I always remember guests more by the wine that I've sold to them than by their name. (laughs) A lot of cases.
1: (laughs) You probably can't refer to them by the wines you've sold to them though. That depends on who they are. Maybe they'd get a kick out of that. (laughs) <laughs> Depends on the wine, too. Probably.
0: Yeah, you sat right there, and you had that, and mm. I, that's how I can remember. But yeah. yeah.
1: Um. So then, yeah. as far as as far as uh, service goes, um, you know that I feel like is maybe, in some ways, the hardest part of the test to prepare for, um, because you can certainly mm. practice it, but I feel like it's so well. For one, for me, and I haven't gotten to the to the higher levels, but it was the thing I was by far the most nervous about, which is bizarre because I what I do but mm-hmm. but something about you know being put in a for me at least being put in something that is uh a rough facsimile of my work environment but I don't know where anything is and it's not actually my restaurant and I don't mm-hmm. you know it's, it's like this whole it's like you know it's kind of like a parallel universe um you know what what's your experience <laughs> been with service and, and do you practice and how do you practice
0: well when I took advanced I was still actively working the floor And just in the last couple of years, I've moved into a more, I guess, corporate, for lack of a better word, um, beverage director position. And so I don't work the floor as much. I still always work the floor for events. Um, But just as far as like day to day, I'm not on the floor that much. And uh, so for for Master, what I have done and what I plan to do in the years moving forward is dodges at a lot of different places because I think, you know, that might help with exactly the scenario you just described as far as, you know, being in an environment that isn't really yours and you aren't really that comfortable, but you're forced to, you know, find your way around and make it work. And, um, and also at McCready's, I had access to a, a pretty good sized list and, but we didn't, we still didn't do quite, and we did a good bit of gear on service, but we weren't doing, you know, the really elevated service, like, That I feel like they throw at you in master these days and with, you know, double decanting magnums or, you know, I don't know, you know, using port tongs, which I've never in my life done. And I don't think they do that at the master setting, but who knows? Um, So I I've tried to seek out places that I know are doing the top level of service because you're being tested at a level at master level. You're being tested at a level of service that doesn't exist all that much anymore you know it's certainly not the norm like you can find i mean much more in the larger cities but it's certainly not um the norm in i don't know smaller cities but um so i think stages are great uh if i feel like i just haven't been working the floor that much at all i'll just go and you know pop bottles on the floor just at at any restaurant just to make sure that i you know it still feels natural in my home setting for sure because i don't want to lose that um but Anyway, it's interesting talking about service because I've found that you know from other people that are taking the exam with me or alongside me, it, some in like in your situation that do it on a daily basis, I feel like find themselves even more nervous than the people that, or maybe I don't I don't know. I was gonna say my thought is that I keep hearing that people that are working the floor aren't passing service as much as people that don't work the floor, and I don't know if it's just because you know, maybe you go into it thinking, well, this is what I do every day. And then you're really surprised at what role uh, your nerves play in it. And you get way more nervous than you expect to get because it's, you know, like riding a bike in your head. And then I feel like the folks that are, you know, maybe working um, for a distributor or retailer, something like that, put, you know, they're, they're so nervous going into it because they don't do it that often that they're at least prepared for that and can kind of keep their cool a little better. I don't know. I mean, of course, there are a million different theories, and everybody's different. But, um, but yeah, I think that try try to put yourself in an un, uncomfortable situation going into it, so that you're prepared for that and not caught off guard by it. I mm-hmm. think would be the best way. Yeah,
1: cool, makes sense. I mean, you I think you've got to be prepared for for things to go wrong too. Like it's almost practicing that you know sort of skill of recovering from whatever it is—dropping a glass, breaking a cork, mm-hmm. sit, you know, all the things that can and do go wrong. Um, And that, you know, may go wrong and probably don't want to completely derail you um, in any setting, let alone an exam one. Um, and then as far as, as far as blind tasting goes, which I think is, you know, kind of the thing that everyone is most interested in, um, especially outside of the sommelier community, like to me, like it's actually the thing I'm least interested in talking to other sommeliers about mostly because to me, it's <laughs> such an intensely personal thing that like, it's just, it's so hard to, for me to explain to uh, to anyone, but it's almost more so to another sommelier kind of like what, you know, like what my markers are for like, say, I don't know, Central Coast Viognier, like you know, it, it is one of those things where it's like it is a personal experience and in, in a way that like rem- what the Grand Cru uh vineyards and Chablis are is not a personal thing. Like that is just a fact. <laughs> um <laughs> right, so how do right. you so so do you get a chance? Do you have tasting groups? Do you get a chance to taste a lot? And and if you don't mind sharing, and that's it's okay if you don't want to, uh what are some wines that you either feel like you, you have a pretty good feel for or you're still struggling with?
0: Sure. Uh I have always been a part of a tasting group in some capacity, whether it be me um, helping to put on, you know, tasting for and people preparing for lower levels, um, but also uh, a group of folks, both in Charleston and in um, now Raleigh that are going for advanced or going for master. And uh, I've been in several different groups that have done a lot of different uh, formats. I've found that, I mean, for a while, we did the everybody bring one wine, everybody gets to try one. You know, everybody gets to blind taste one wine. But as groups get bigger and bigger, I feel like it's it's a waste of time because you're only getting to do to blind taste one wine, and it could take you know an hour and a half, two hours, and that just it didn't seem right. So the groups up here, which is great, one person uh, essentially proctors or you know brings the wine and doesn't taste that week, and so and then everybody does kind of a one on one, and they alternate, and so you get to taste three and you know sometimes if there aren't enough people we're able to you know proctor one at a time and everybody gets to do six but i think that you know even the three is way better than just everybody sitting around and watch everybody do one wine um so but i like i like doing the i've i've always had um staff just put me on the spot and to do it for them when i'm in the middle of preparing and other times and i feel like they get a kick out of it and they learn a lot out of it too and always knowing that I'm not, I'm not necessarily going to nail it every time for sure. And I think that makes everybody um, feel more confident in what they're doing as well. Um, But as far as, gosh, um, you know, I feel pretty confident about, like I said, a lot of the wines that have that terpenic quality Rieslings, I feel like I've gotten pretty good at as far as at least understanding country of origin and pretty good about, Um, region of origin within Germany, maybe not necessarily within Austria, but, um, but Australia, you know, Australia versus old world, of course, and, um, all that. Um, but in general, like I mentioned, uh, non-aromatic whites have always been a struggle for me. I have forever called... (laughs) gruner chablis and chablis gruner until Mm -hmm. lately i finally feel like i broke through and i feel like it was like this mid-palate weight that you get out of chablis that i misunderstood for i don't know i guess just like a little bit riper style of gruner or something like that and i feel like just in the last couple of years i finally i I, it just i got it, it was such a hang up that i think i got in my head and made it a bigger problem than it ever really was and would second guess myself and always guess the opposite of what i felt like i knew it was in the moment and then of course was wrong Mm -hmm. so um so go with your gut always i am a huge (laughs) huge supporter of that um but as far as reds bordeaux used to be a big struggle for me but that's because i hardly ever drank bordeaux I just never did. And now I, I had so many people that proctored my blind tasting say, you need to go drink Bordeaux. Just do it. You've got to get comfortable with Bordeaux because calves seemed like such an easy thing for me. But for some reason, I had a block on Bordeaux. Um, and then, you know, San Giovese, I love trying to talk to my staff now about blind tasting San Giovese versus Barolo. And I've had someone all along the way. Someone's always had some different way of telling it apart of like the if the tannin is higher than acid it's nebbiolo if the acid is higher than tannin it's Sangiovese. i like that one a lot but for me i also just use the if everything is high across the board tannin acid alcohol body is barolo if you can say medium my if you can say medium plus on anything it's probably Sangiovese instead hmm. of barolo
1: Interesting. um
0: and I like that one, too, because I like you do run into, into that a lot, at least like with Reservas and, you know, some of the, I guess, more modern styles of burlo. But I don't know. I could keep going. You tell me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, it's it's always interesting to get a, a sense for what, what it is that people um, – you know, feel good or bad with or struggle with or, or challenged by and, and how those things I think change over time. I think it's interesting, you know, that, that, um, I, you know, I know people in my tasting group and whatnot, who will, will tell you that a year ago, they, they could get, you know, they never missed, um, you know, they never missed Albarino and now they never get it right. It is so strange Mm -hmm. how those things, those things do kind of evolve. And, and in some ways that, you know, we just can't, um, I don't know, we just can't, like we can't fully understand why it is that our own senses struggle with um with with wines and but some of it is also like i think there are wines that have gotten harder quite honestly like you know climate change being a big factor in it you know there are certain regions like you know i feel like even when i started getting, getting into into tasting like sancerre used to be to me really 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 um, pretty straightforward to get in a blind tasting, mm-hmm. and you know, the last vintage or two of serre If you're drinking something modern, less or something uh, current, unless the person buying it um, is doing a really good job and really understands, you know, who is able to control ripeness, you know, you get Soler now that does not taste like Soler. Tastes like weird. I don't know, weird New Zealand soft blanc, or it's, it's right, mm-hmm. but still lean. It's just, it isn't the sort of paradigm. And, you know, part of it is also, we all have to evolve. And as, as wine shifts, you know, we can't, I, it doesn't really do me any good to be like, well, in 2012, this was, this definitely wouldn't have been what Sancerre tasted like, because <laughs> right. here we are. So yeah, I mean, I think those things are, those things are really interesting and, and present interesting challenges. Let's, let's shift gears a little bit away from, um, from tasting and exams and things like that um you know you mentioned uh, a bit ago that one of the sort of challenges for for you and especially in studying is that um you know you're in um you know slightly less prominent markets than you know sort of the ones that people think about not you know new york san francisco etc um do you feel like um at least uh, maybe less from a uh, studying for an exam side but just from doing your job side is it is it harder to find the wines you want to put on your list in your market or in some in some ways is it easier because maybe there's less competition for the wines you really want
0: yes it's a, it's a combination of both i feel like in charleston for a while because i just moved to raleigh from charleston and i was in charleston for almost eight years and i think you know when i first started buying in charleston probably five-ish years ago four or five years ago there were a lot of wines that you couldn't find. And I had just developed an obsession with Chamber Street Wines emails in New York and was always asking for the wines that they had available. And, and all the distributors were like, well, never heard of it. Or, you know, oh, we can't get any of that or something like that. But in, in those five years since then, I feel like so much more wine became available in Charleston and it became a lot more competitive in Charleston as it is now, while it's not necessarily one of the largest or most prominent markets, there are so many restaurants and so much great talent down there that I think, you know, there was enough demand for it. And so now it also became extremely competitive to get those wines. While there was maybe a sweet spot for about a year or two, it uh, it ran out pretty quickly because there were so many of us that were fighting for the same stuff. Now in uh, Raleigh, I feel like I'm hitting it at another Great sweet spot because you know I think Raleigh is in this exciting time of growth and the restaurant scene is really neat, but I think that the beverage scene is a little bit behind the food scene. So there is a ton of great wine because as far as you know, statewide markets, North Carolina is actually a much larger larger market than South Carolina just because there are more large cities, and so I think you know for that reason they get larger allocations of certain wines and there are a lot of people that just don't know about it and it's i've been extremely surprised and excited to reach out to distributors and say you know is there any chance you have any more of this lying around and they're like oh yeah tons. ton a lot of people didn't take their allocations i'm just like oh my gosh i can't believe that's so exciting so um you know it that's a double-edged sword like i want to, I want the beverage scene to grow and everything like that and become more advanced. But at the same time, I don't want to start fighting for the wines again. But we'll see. So
1: cool. Well, okay. Yeah, it does seem like uh, like maybe there's a uh, you if you if you're if you play it right and you're the kind of the the leading edge of the charge, then maybe you'll always be able to get those those wines because I'm sure your uh, your distributors will appreciate the uh, the the fact that you were there when when they had those highly what should be highly sought after wines uh, languishing in a warehouse somewhere
0: right that's the hope that's right
1: so to some extent do you feel like this this is i apologize also kind of a weird difficult question and again feel free to answer <laughs> it with as much or as little detail as you want but i a thing i feel occasionally and it, it's definitely changed in the time i've been here so i live in seattle and um you know sometimes when you get together with with people at um whether it's um Big like events, other places, or in in any way, in any case, where you're bringing together um, sommeliers and wine professionals from various parts of the country, um, I felt like for a lot of my career, which isn't super long, but is you know I've been doing it for a little while, um, that that until recently, people kind of looked at sommeliers and wine professionals from Seattle with sort of a little bit of skepticism. And I would, I would, I wonder if that's something that you've experienced when you are in the whether it's in in, maybe not in the exam because hopefully you're being taken as seriously as a candidate from anywhere but maybe when when talking to your fellow candidates or things like that do you do you get the sense that there is a little bit of uh I guess snobbery
0: just from coming from a smaller market yeah is that what you mean yeah you know maybe a little bit I don't think I I I totally understand where you're coming from and I think it's interesting I think Raleigh I've gotten out of A little bit more so with Raleigh, but in general, I also think, you know, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to sound snobbish at all when I say this either, but I feel like maybe since I've established myself a little bit more so from being in Charleston, that people are just kind of excited to hear that I'm in a new market and that, you know, hopefully going to bring some new fun things to the area. Um, But in general, yes, I do feel like there are a lot of people that kind of just like, instead of You know, oh, I'm from New York, and like they're like, oh, where? You know, if you're like, oh, I'm from Charleston or from Raleigh, they're like, oh, interesting, because they're like, you know, not even expecting to know if I were to answer where. Like, they're not, you know, thinking that they would be familiar with it anyway, so they kind of lose interest in it. So, yeah, I mean, I can definitely understand where you're coming from, but I don't feel like it has. It's, I don't think it's been limiting as far as networking. I
1: guess. Cool, and I mean, to some extent, there's also. You know, I found the flip side to that is um, for me and, and I think for a lot of other people, it's cool to f- meet and find people who are doing uh, who are really excited about wine and are doing really exciting things with it all over that that are that, you know, the state of things in the US is such that it's not only a couple of markets that have really passionate wine professionals that have restaurants and and whatnot with great wine programs like it would sort of be lame if the only way to do that was to move to new york or san francisco or you know a couple of other cities so some of us get to live where we want and do what we want which is kind of nice yes
0: very
1: true (laughs) um and then um kind of last question for you i think is uh you sort of talked about this in general but like what is it that you're uh, i guess personally or maybe in the context of of your restaurants like what what wines are you most excited by right now like what do you just get um, super geeked out on?
0: Oh gosh. So many different things. I feel like in general, I can't buy or sell enough Chablis. I mean, I could totally run down like the way you and I talked about previously with champagne and Riesling. Like I'll always, always, always want to sell more champagne and Riesling. And fortunately I think that people are starting to appreciate champagne in a greater sense because there are so many awesome new champagnes available to the market. I feel like every day and I wish I could just do a list of champagne, mm-hmm. but, um, but I love Chablis. I think that it has so much application when it comes to food. And I think it, you know, while there are of course, always going to be those people that are super disappointed because they you know, not, super I would never sell a Chablis to someone who's looking for, you know, an oaky version, but I think that, you know, there's still those handful of people that love their oaky Chardonnay so much that the word Chablis is kind of like a bad word, but, I also think there's majorly the reverse of that. And, you know, maybe it's more the younger generation is interested in the less oaky, more mineral-toned Chardonnay. I didn't even realize Chardonnay could taste like that, but love, love Chablis. Um, I feel like I've lately really been enjoying a lot of Northeastern Italian whites, you know, kind of all over the place out there. I think that a lot of the whites of Friuli are really amazing, um, I retasted the, let's see, is it Borgo de Tiglio? Um, is that right? Yeah. I think the Borgo de Tiglio mm-hmm. um, white, um, from Friuli that were just blew my mind so much, you know, I love, I love the combination of lots of minerality and some texture and acidity all, you know, all at the same time, instead of just like, you know, lean and clean, um, was really blown away by this. Cause I think that that. Um, as far as whites go, that balance of texture, minerality, and acidity really m- makes so much sense with so many different styles of food, especially a lot of the Southern influence food that we have at pools and all of the wood wood fire grilled food at Death and Taxes. As far as red, you know, a lot of I've I've been really enjoying, and I guess as we get into warmer months, it might not apply as much, but really enjoying a lot of um island wines like some of the wines from Corsica and the Canary Islands I just think that in both places the like volcanic minerality really stings in those wines and they aren't necessarily all like lean they like have this awesome dark fruitedness but are still light on their feet and have tons of uh, minerality um so many different things um I don't know I mean I it's hard to I'd try really I mean for my own personal consumption i get i go down rabbit holes with certain regions but because the two biggest lists that i'm working with right now aren't huge and we're talking like you know one of them's you know under around 150 and the other one is more like 60 i i don't really have to i really have to make it balanced and representative of lots of different areas instead of you know having like an in-depth selection of one particular region. And so it's really like, it's. I find it almost more challenging than working with a large list because I'm having to really, you know, narrow in on that one producer that I think is awesome from that one particular area. And it's actually, it's really challenging, but fun. Yeah. So.
1: There's, there's something about having to do that kind of editorial thing where you don't get to say, okay, well, here are my, you know, seven favorite producers of Cornas, and I have to pick one Northern Rome Syrah right. and have it, is like it's it's both i agree like there's there's a certain there's something that's you know amazing about being able to to work with a program as vast as that i also think though that like and this is to me maybe again this almost harkens back to to the question about differences in markets like you know when i talk to sommeliers in certain restaurants and it's certain it's more common in places like new york or whatever where they get to talk about how you know oh well we can have or they don't even realize that like a list of i don't know couple hundred burgundies and, you know, they can put all the Northern Rhone Syrah <laughs> on they want and, and they have the money and the cellar space and apparently the clientele and all those things. And that is, that is cool. And obviously you get to have a tremendous, you know, opportunity to learn and experience and sell all those wines. But I do think there is, there is a way in which it is, um, it, it's sort of like, I don't know, it's like asking someone for a music recommend for like, uh, you know, someone to recommend, a, a, some new music to you and they give you, um, I don't know, 50 CDs. And they're like, these are all great. And I right. think there is a skill and it's a skill in our industry that is sometimes I think not uh, honed enough by some people of being able to really sort through a, a, a lot of different wines of a very high quality and similar style and, and some extent and similar price maybe even and pick one wine or two to put on a list and, and then and be able to explain why those are the the expressions of that particular style that you chose and that that is maybe not as glamorous in some ways, but I think it's actually in a lot of ways more more challenging
0: yes I totally agree I mean the same thing
1: well yeah. keby, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it um best of luck in you. uh, in your studies and your uh as you move forward and great chatting with you
0: thanks you too I appreciate it.
1: Thanks again to Cappy Pete for joining me on Disgorged. If you're in Raleigh, you can likely find her at Death and Taxes or Pool's Diner, or you can follow her on Instagram at Cappy Pete. As for me, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Zijabal and please rate and subscribe to Disgourged on whatever podcast app you use. Thanks again for listening to Disgourged, and cheers.